This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for Episode 58 of the Recorded Future podcast. Our guest today is Steve Pavolny, Head of Advanced Threat Research at McAfee. We'll learn how he came to lead his team of researchers, his philosophy on leadership, and how to strike that balance between maintaining a healthy competitive advantage in the marketplace, all while contributing to the larger threat research community and helping to make the world a safer place. He shares his thoughts on threat intelligence, why he believes it's grown in importance for most organizations, and will get his advice on choosing what kinds of services a company might need. Stay with us. So I actually started my career in security um, just kind of playing on my own when I was a teenager and kind of fell in love with computers and really didn't get into security uh, aspect of it around college time frame when I just kind of got interested in you know kind of like uh, uh, breaking into things and, and the offensive and, and defensive side of security. After college, um, I started to explore the world of security a little bit more uh, professionally and uh, started with, with Target Corporation. Uh, I always tell people that the Target hack was not my fault, though. That's my, that's my <laughs> standard disclaimer. So, uh, but I worked with Target uh, rotationally for a while, Target Corporate, and found a love for security but wanted to get much more technical. So uh, I rotated over to and made a move geographically down to Austin, Texas, where uh, a giant uh, tipping point doing that network security for a number of years. Tipping Point was acquired by, of course, the uh, large AV vendor Trend Micro. And uh, Trend Micro I was with for about a year. Uh, found this position with McAfee uh, in late November of last year and uh, and came over to to run security research and uh, vulnerability and malware analysis over uh, over with McAfee. And I've got a lot, of fo- a lot of family that lives here in the Portland area, so it worked out really nicely. Describe to us what is your day to day like. What uh, what challenges are you facing regularly? That's a that's a tough question to answer because uh, one of the great things about this job is that every single day is different, uh, truly different, and we we really never work the same day twice in a row. But uh, fundamentally, on a day to day basis, we're dealing with uh, complex threats from vulnerabilities to malwares and targeted campaigns to just generic security concepts in general that uh, that we see uh, as the as the world around us technology and and security change on on such a uh, such a quick basis here the team is divided into two parts vulnerability researchers and malware and campaign research and what we track are things like nation states and individual actors and their intentions. We look at the type of malware and code and and uh, exploits that they're writing and releasing and who they're targeting. Uh, we work with law enforcement uh, vendors and, and affected parties to analyze these scenarios. And then we're a research organization. So, of course, we're we're publicly reporting our findings and, and you can follow our blog post if you want to see some of the latest uh, campaigns and targeted research that we've uncovered. And then we're also uh, uh, we're building a uh, actually like a, a giant research lab here in our Hillsborough, Portland area office in Oregon, where we'll start to take the research that our vulnerability researchers are working on, uh, different products, software, hardware, firmware, technologies, 
and essentially trying to break them so that we can improve them. And we have a, a responsible disclosure program where we'll work with the vendors uh, directly very early on in the process to let them know what we're finding so that they can uh, better secure the products, whether it's uh, software patches, hardware re-architecture, or, uh, or any other kind of issue. So we're building a large physical lab here to actually support that. And my day-to-day job, just to come full circle, can be anything from uh, reverse engineering to to building talent and recruiting to painting the walls in the lab um, <laughs> to analyzing the latest exploits. So we have a we have a highly uh, highly unique type of role, and that's what keeps us on our feet. And what are the things that uh, that draw your interest? If you have look at a list of uh, of things that are going on, what are the things you like to do most? My personal passion is around vulnerability research, and uh, it's really exciting to be able to take something that that most people don't understand the security implications of, and and to be able to show them, you know, what the what the bad guys are really trying to do with it, and if we can beat them to the punch on that and expose it before that is publicly. Uh, publicly known, that's pretty exciting. And and even more so when we can demonstrate it to them in a very tangible way, like a demo or, or a, a systems test. Uh, so for example, you know, we've done some research in, in the medical industry, which we're getting ready to re- report on and just showing some in-hospital physical attacks on systems that aren't secured and some of the implications that you might not think of when you're dealing with systems that um, that are poorly coded or that haven't uh, haven't implemented uh, strong security practices. So I'm really passionate about highlighting the problems that we have, uh, the solutions that are possible for them, and and letting people visualize uh, what's really going on around them. Yeah, I want to explore how you go about building your team. Can you describe for us? Uh, you know, how how do you make sure that you have a uh, the breadth of talent that you need and, and uh, what are the challenges there with getting that talent? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And, and um, I wish I had all the answers for that because finding the right talent is, is very challenging. And especially if you're trying to build a team uh, locally, like we're trying to do here. So we can find a number of folks worldwide that have the skill set and expertise to do the type of work we're trying to do. And we've hired, we've got uh, team members in in Paris, in Cork, Ireland, um, in, in the U.S., of course, here in Hillsborough, in Texas. Uh, we, we're spread across uh, uh, Europe. So we, we do hire remotely. But one of the challenges that we're trying to do is as we look towards more of a a hardware focus and a device focus uh, to build, as I said, demos and systems that we can show are exploitable. We really need more hands-on talent. So we need people to be actually in front of keyboards and in front of the devices that they're tearing apart um, from a physical perspective. And and a lot of the times uh, relocation is is challenging to work on or finding local talent can be challenging. So the, the types of people that we hire uh, fundamentally have to fit into three areas. Uh, one is is a passion for all things security. And we'll hire a more junior type of a person who has the right motivation, the right passion, and uh, kind of has that, that mindset of they want to break things, but they want to do it in a safe and responsible environment. Beyond that, we look for individuals that have uh, software experience specifically with development. And, and that's really important because most most of the vulnerabilities that we end up uh, finding and reporting are our software-based vulnerabilities. And then finally, we're now starting to explore more, more hardware and, and uh, radio protocols and, and some, some different vectors for research that do require a little bit more of that 
kind of hands-on capability. And so we look for people that have experience uh, opening up devices and removing uh, boards from them and components and connecting to vehicles and extracting information. And these are the types of systems that we're, we're auditing in our, uh, in our new lab in Hillsborough. Now, certainly um, McAfee has a long history on the product side. It's certainly one of the most well-known names uh, when it comes to antivirus uh, and, and protecting uh, computers. Why do you suppose that it's important for the company to make the investment on the research side? I think every security company fundamentally needs to have some kind of a research entity. And depending on, on where you play in the industry as an organization, uh, the size and, and uh, complexity and technical capabilities of that team might be different. But for McAfee, with the size it is and the reach it has for its customer base, we need a research team to explore the areas that either the product plays well in today, could play in the future, or or maybe we haven't even thought about before. So part of the work that our team does, uh, although we consider ourselves kind of product agnostic in our research, is highlighting and understanding the different verticals of the attack surface so that we can educate McAfee as well as the industry on what we should be looking at defensively in addition to just, uh, you know, what can we what can we break? What can we look at offensively? And areas like automotive research and aviation and, and SCADA industrial control systems, these are non-typical areas for an antivirus vendor to to play in, but uh, also uh, certainly key industries from a security perspective, uh, especially in the emerging future of connected devices. And our research capabilities uh, allow McAfee to consider whether it's a, a smart st- strategic play to, to be involved in those industries. I'm curious on your take on this notion that from a business point of view, it's important for McAfee to be able to support your own products, um, have things that perhaps are exclusive to your products. But it strikes me that there's a need to balance that against the sense of community, of sharing information with other researchers to help make uh, the community and, and I guess even the world a safer place. Yeah, Dave, that's a that's a spot on question and and very insightful and not easy in the answer either either because I think it is a a gray area uh, in terms of information sharing versus you know what you keep internal uh, what you what you actually arm the security world with versus uh, potential attackers and that's a that's a gray area that we navigate um, all the time so for for instance if we find uh, a vulnerability in software. Our, our typical public policy is that vendors have 90 days to provide a patch or a fix for that software, potentially up to 120 days if uh, if the vendor is working with us uh, good faith but just can't make that timeline. And at that point, um, most vendors have understood the security implications, uh, will take ownership for and develop patches for uh, a problem like that and, and roll it out. And that's the end of the story. Uh, and that point, you know, the world is it's kind of a safer place. We potentially patch that vulnerability and it's t- time to talk about it. The more complex scenario is when a software vendor may not respond or may not be able to to roll out some kind of a fix in time. And then we navigate the the challenging waters of, you know, how public do we get with the information? How do we hold the vendor accountable without burning them and, and making, you know, the products that they're they're shipping weaker or more susceptible to attack? And Fundamentally, I guess the way that I look at it personally is, you know, the bad guys are doing the same work that we're doing. They're better funded. There's more of them. They've got uh, their full-time jobs is is focused on on the same type of work that we're doing, uh, just with greater resources. So I kind of view every potential vulnerability 
in the light of, you know, it could have or probably already has been found and certainly will be at some point with enough time and resources. So why not educate the security industry publicly to a responsible extent of what kind of problems are out there and how they can be fixed before the bad guys actually get a chance to exploit them. And certainly there'll be times when when you have this, the disclosure does not quite line up to the actual uh, reporting of the vulnerability. But we kind of view it as uh, this is something that we feel responsible for pushing the uh, software development and hardware development community towards. And uh, we've really seen vendors lag significantly behind uh, in terms of, of their abilities to respond to and patch critical vulnerabilities. And, and we want to be a part of, of improving that process and that timeline. It, it isn't an easy answer. Um, it's a complex question. But uh, I guess our fundamental takeaway is that we want to be seen as a, as a strategic security partner, even though uh, you know it seems like some of the activities we're doing to the uneducated eye might seem malicious in nature. Fundamentally, what we're doing is we're actually helping secure these products uh, before the, the bugs can be found and exploited by the bad guys. I want to touch on threat intelligence and specifically the role that you think it plays in an organization's ability to defend themselves. Uh, again, another great question and also a loaded question because uh, everyone claims to have a threat intelligence feed nowadays. It's kind of the buzzword, as you know, uh, at every conference you go to. And, and threat intelligence is essential. It's a large part of the byproduct of our research that goes back into our McAfee products and into uh, other research organizations as well in the industry. There are a number of uh, both public and private entities today that have uh, – uh, phenomenal products for threat intelligence, and which uh, many of which are freely available to researchers and uh, also to exploiters or you know to to threat actors. So you consider something like VirusTotal, which is kind of your quintessential uh, feed or repository for malicious uh, files and documents and and activity. Uh, it is of course heavily heavily used by the white hat industry, but. Uh, it'd be a mistake to think that it wasn't also leveraged by uh, attackers when they're when they're trying to gather information on on targets and attribution and uh, and and gain access to uh, files that they might not other otherwise have. So we've we've got this uh, kind of yin and yang perspective of how much threat intelligence we publicize when we go public with it and what it could be used for or has been used for in the past. But I think ultimately the the, the takeaway for us is uh, you know we believe that in openness and transparency. And so when we publish a report, for example, on a, a major threat actor or a campaign, you'll see that uh, we almost always link or uh, list the indicators of compromise and uh, and the threat intelligence that we've found to the to the full extent that we're able to and, and certainly that we've uh, that we've got covered in our products already. Now, how do you go about balancing the role of the analyst versus automation? of dialing that in to really optimize, uh, make the most of both of those assets? Our analysts automate to do their job effectively. And uh, in the research industry, uh, specifically security research, automation is absolutely essential. So uh, if you take, for example, uh, a product like uh, Ida Pro, where you may be using, again, a, a very standard industry product to analyze malware or vulnerabilities, 
you can actually build upon that framework by using something like Ida Python to automate the analysis and exploitation, discovery of vulnerabilities. And uh, this is a very, very common practice for us. So we rely heavily on scripting-based languages like Python, Perl, Ruby, JavaScript to further automate the work that we're doing from both finding and enumerating vulnerabilities to exploiting and analyzing vulnerabilities and even sometimes for scraping the web for threat intelligence, uh, like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of uh, automation that we've built internally that lets us uh, pull down resources in vast volumes that we wouldn't be able to do with a much more manual approach. So uh, I think it really is a uh, essential skill set. What's your advice for someone who's out there shopping around for threat intelligence, trying to decide uh, what role it's going to play in their own organization and, and how to... Uh, how to approach it to get what best fits their needs? I think it's a complicated answer, but uh, if we if we boil it down to the simplest uh, answer that I can think of, it would be, you know, what do you what are you going to do with it, and is it actionable? So you can have uh, the largest data set and threat intelligence in the world, but if you don't have an action plan or an understanding of what you're looking at or what you can do with it, uh, you're really just sitting on, on useless data. So think about what your attack surface is, where your exposure points are, uh, what you have the ability to take action on, and apply those concepts to the threat intelligence feed uh, to be able to respond more quickly. So if you consider uh, phishing and spear phishing attacks, you know, some of the highest threats to your specific industry, uh, you know, then then some of the threat intelligence that might be really interesting would be email vectors of attack and the type of malicious documents that you're seeing associated with uh, phishing and spear phishing attacks. Uh, it might be uh, some natural language processing or artificial intelligence or machine learning on uh, actual emails to recognize malicious content from benign or standard content. So to me, it's it's really what's the what's the impact that you can take away from a threat intelligence feed and directly apply within your organization to solve security problems. I'm curious uh, what your philosophy is when it comes to building your own team and what, what your leadership style is, how you go about, you know, building that culture of coworkers to uh, to do the tasks that need to be done there. I have a little bit of a unique perspective on building research teams uh, because researchers, as you may know, have a uh, some some specific ideas about how they they want to operate within the confines of their job. Researchers are uh, inquisitive by nature. They want to explore and break things. They want to have uh, extensive support long term for projects. And I think a big part of building a research organization is being able to protect those kinds of resources and give them really the runway to to explore and chase down solutions that um, may seem like there's not an easy answer right away. So we had a interesting you know anecdote of this exact type of scenario last week actually where one of our researchers was just at the point where you know he'd been working on an exploit for for about a month and was getting really frustrated but thought he was there you know he called me up and said you know should I should I move on um, I said, absolutely not. You know, you've got this. Um, I, I think you're really close to it. Uh, yes, you could you could potentially, you know, move, move to something else and and, uh, and and find something just as interesting. But I think you need to stick with it. And three days later, he sent me a, a, a reverse shell exploit for the, the vulnerability he was looking at. So um, so it's being able to guard, being able to protect those resources from distractions while at the same time, uh, you know, not letting something run indefinitely. 
And then I think it's also really important to uh, to be able to provide the opportunities for them to grow and expand. And this this industry is so highly volatile that uh, you need access to training resources. You need access to uh, mentors and to serve as a mentor. Uh, so we encourage a lot of that cross-team growth and collaboration, formal or informal mentorships, and and we find that you know in the long term that really helps build the the talent that we're looking for uh, versus going out and finding someone who's been doing it for 20 years and uh, and is kind of stuck in their ways. We're really looking for just generic problem solvers and and people that can can think of solving challenges differently. So we think a little bit outside of the box when we're building a team like this and and the type of researchers that that work well in this industry, uh, I, I think are, uh, are those that think outside of the box as well. So I, I would like people to take away from this conversation one of the concepts that we've been trying to expand upon, which is the explosion and growth of, of internet-connected devices and the technology that we you know, now take for granted and carry around in our pockets, that we drive in our cars, uh, that we fly around in the world in, and that control every, every aspect of our lives. The downside of that explosion of technology and that growth and innovation is the negative security implications that come with it. And and part of my team's job is to shed some light on what are the challenge areas there, uh, what are the potential impacts and implications of this this growth and explosion in technology, and how do we help secure this space? And we spend a lot of time uh, looking into each of these areas for that that sole reason. So I think just educating the industry and uh, and folks who might not otherwise be aware of the security challenges that are out there is one of the fundamental tenets of, of this team. And we hope that you uh, follow our blog and keep up with our social media accounts, uh, which is where we post most of this relevant information. Um, we also contribute occasionally to a podcast called Hackable, which is a Mac feature-driven podcast, and uh, and we'd welcome uh, welcome as many viewers to that as well. Our thanks to Steve Pavolny from McAfee for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.